continuing to uh, march through the Psalms of Asaph. And so hopefully last week you were able to pick up this chapter on reorienting the heart and head, Psalm 73. And uh, we'll cover that today. And then there's another one outside in the foyer on Psalm 74, uh, which we'll cover uh, next week. So... So instead of jumping right into explanation of the text like I did this morning during the worship service without reading uh, the scriptures, which was my mistake, <clears throat> I do think that's very important, actually. <laughs> um, we'll read uh, Psalm 73 and then, and then um, talk about it, okay? Um, so let me read it, and then we'll have a brief prayer, and um, we'll turn to um, the psalm. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph, truly God is good to Israel, to those that are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious in the er- of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increased in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly you have set them in slippery places, and you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that we can look at this wonderful psalm. Help us to understand it as we open uh, its pages and seek its meaning. And Father, uh, we pray that all the glory would redound to Christ, uh, which this psalm ultimately uh, bespeaks. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, if you have this paper, you might want to follow along. If you don't have it, that's okay. Uh, You don't have to have it. Um, um, Martin Buber, who is a Jewish philosopher, uh, 
uh, says about this psalm, I return today once again to the psalm that I once, in accordance with Franz Rosenzweig's wishes, spoke at his graveside. What is it that so draws me to this poem that it is pieced together out of description, report, and confession, and draws me ever more strongly the older I become? I think it is this, that here a person reports how he attained to a true sense of his life experience, and that this sense touches directly on the eternal. So this psalm has always been a favorite of a lot of people. Uh, Maybe the best approach is I'll go through and try and explain uh, what I've commented upon here uh, with this psalm, and um, either stop and ask questions intermittently or, you know, allow you to, or, or towards the end, but <clears throat> it is striking how many people, Psalter scholars who look at this psalm, um, have either identified it as their favorite or one of their favorites. For example, Walter Brueggemann, as I say at the beginning here, says, we come now to what may be the most remarkable and satisfying of all the Psalms. Um, And perhaps one of the reasons why is, at the end of the day, it helps us get through periods of bewilderment in our Christian faith. Um, And as far as genre and introduction, I've been trying to get you all to think in categories of genre to help your reading strategy in the Psalms. So I added a little bit here that might help you think about it. Um, Instead of breaking genres down into various classifications like uh, laments or hymns or Thanksgiving Psalms or royal Psalms, uh, Walter Brueggemann has a more simplified way of talking about genre. He says some psalms are orientation, like the hymns. So everything seems to be uh, going along pretty well, and, and it's all praise. There's no lament. Disorientation is often a category used for lament. And then reorientation is, uh, remember we talked about in Thanksgiving psalms, what marks them out is you have an embedded lament describing the distress of the problem that one went through, and then coming out of that, they're giving praise to God in Thanksgiving in light of being delivered from the distress. So that's a pretty good way of thinking about it. Um, Brueggemann thinks that this psalm fits into the category of disorientation. That is lament. And you can see that from the first 16 verses. It seems like it's full of lament and disorientation. Um, I think he's wrong on that. I think rather uh, it's a masterpiece of reorientation because basically what you get in the first 16 verses is all this disorientation. And then he switches over uh, to a uh, kind of reorientation after he enters into the sanctuary, right? Um, so now before we continue, it's important to talk about verse one, okay? Uh, because verse one, uh, seems to throw from our perspective, the outline out of sorts a little bit. Uh, notice what it says. Truly God is good to Israel, uh, to those who are pure in heart. Now that seems like an affirmation of faith, right? It seems positive. And, um, A lot of people, because they're committed to this idea that the essence of biblical Hebrew poetry is parallelism, 
want to make a change here, and you can do that just by putting a space between some of the Hebrew letters. And then it would say, truly God is good to the upright, to the pure in heart. In other words, A, God is good to the upright. B, what's more B, to the pure in heart. Uh, so you can understand how that fits with the parallelism, but the problem with that is there's no extant textual evidence uh, for making that change. And so I think that that's just people trying to foist something on the psalm that doesn't belong there, okay? Uh, rather, I think it should stand just like it does in the ESV. It says, uh, truly God is good to Israel, uh, to the pure in heart. And you say, well, why does he begin this way, okay? Uh, well, he begins this way because he gives the premise for the whole psalm, okay? So it's like an affirmation of faith up front before he gets into talking about his disorientation, uh, so, for example, I quote Brueggemann again on page two. If you have it, you can follow along with the quote. Otherwise, I'll just read it. He says, verse one lays down the premise of the psalm. It is this verse that causes us to regard the psalm as a wisdom psalm. However, such a judgment is not without a problem. Wisdom characteristically deals with moral coherence, freedom, responsibility, and mystery. And while these motifs are present, they are not prominent. Rather, this is an intensely religious statement disclosing a rich interiority of faith that uh, wisdom teachers characteristically do not probe. That's open to debate, but anyway. There is a kind of profundity and sensitivity not usually associated with wisdom. While the presenting problem may be theodicy, now theodicy is just a technical word, means trying to uh, make coherent the goodness of God with people's experience of suffering or affliction. Um, the course of the argument, the resolution are on terms uh, other than sapiential, in other words, wisdom. By the end of the psalm, the issue of theodicy is dealt with by a move from the question of equity to the power of communion. Um, then he says, and you see the smaller quote next to the block quote, come, verse 1 says, I will show you in light of verse 1, how I learned to make this faith affirmation in an adult world of hurt, envy, and inequity. In other words, when you look at the structure of the psalm, <clears throat> uh, verse 1 is a statement of faith, and then verses 2 to 16 are all about uh, affliction and about bewilderment on the part of the psalmist. Uh, the major presenting problem for the psalmist is the prosperity of the wicked, okay? And see, in his tradition, he's used to um, covenantal categories such that the wicked are supposed to get their comeuppance, they're supposed to be punished, and the righteous are supposed to get their comeuppance, namely blessing. But he doesn't see that happening. And that's what causes his bewilderment in the 16 verses, so much so, he almost jettisons his faith. That's evident. I mean, some people will comment about this. He makes almost blasphemous statements toward the end. Or he almost says, um, <clears throat> if I describe to the sons, your sons of this generation, what I'm going through in this uh, bewilderment, then I may cause them to stumble and fall. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit trumps his desires and actually now it's immortalized forever in Scripture, <laughs> uh, you know, his bewilderment that he's going through, um, and that's what happens. Um, so, 
Um, so I think that's the right way to ver uh, view verse 1, is to think of it as an overall, overarching statement of faith. And then the psalmist launches into uh, what happens. Now, in order to understand what he's describing in verses 2 through 16, uh, you have to talk about the, what I call the nature of sacred doubt here. And in order to do that, we have to talk about one of the most important principles for understanding the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible is called the doctrine of retribution. Now, that may sound like a mouthful, but it's really quite simple. And we're used to this in our own civil society and, and especially legal justice system. Namely, that the wicked um, are rewarded with their just deserts and the righteous are rewarded with their just deserts. Namely, blessings for the righteous, curses for the wicked. That's what we expect in the world. Okay? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Eye and eye and shame, but shame. Uh, and so... That's what an ancient Hebrew would expect based upon Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. If you do this, you will be blessed. If you don't do this, then you will be cursed. Okay, That's called very simply uh, deed-consequence nexus. In other words, a kind of calculus. And when they didn't see that happen, okay, that caused them frustration. Anxiety, just like it causes us frustration and anxiety. You know, when a friend of my family's, um, you know, is driving home in Washington, drunk driver crosses the meridian, and that drunk driver wipes out three generations of women in, in one car accident because he didn't have time to correct, and then he gets off in a technicality, okay, uh, we cry, foul, okay, that's not just, okay, that shouldn't be, okay, it's a kind of uh, when we, we all, but especially the Israelites, had this expectation uh, for equitable justice and retribution and uh, for God to act as he promised he would. But then when they go through experiences where that's not the case, that causes bewilderment and often generates these lament psalms. Okay? Uh, you're not acting like you said you would. You know, you're not acting like you promised, or we know is true in this part of, of the word. And so this is exactly what happens when he goes through and, and, and he sees the wicked round about him in verses 2 to 16. Okay? Uh, they're described as fat. Okay? They're not suffering. Now, for us Americans, that's hard to imagine. You know, that may sound like a curse. Talk to the medical people in the room. They tell you, well, it is. You know, you've got to keep your cholesterol down. I'd be over the fat. But in the ancient world, uh, who could uh, become obese is the people who are not out working the fields all day, but the people who had sugar in their, you know, jars to add to their drinks and that kind of thing and sit upon their thrones and order people around. And so he's describing those kinds of people, okay? Um, and, and then he gets down to verse 10. Well, he, he also says they have this posture of pride. Okay, they speak arrogantly about, you know, the God of heaven. And then in verse 10, which is one of the most difficult verses in the psalm to translate, it should be understood as, therefore he, that is the wicked, turns his, that is God's people, this way, 
In other words, away from God, and waters of fullness are drained out to them, sipped by them. That's literally what the Hebrew says. So the point here is, uh, these people are so wicked, they also cause people of the covenant and people of faith to be tempted to go off the reservation and, and follow, follow them. Because it looks like, oh, well, they're blessed. They have abundance, okay? Um, and then they, they go on with this kind of unbounded pride. Is there knowledge of the Most High? They ask the question, okay? Um, and then at the uh, very end, the, he sums it up and says, uh, these are uh, the wicked, okay? Uh, they ever increase in uh, wealth. And um, <clears throat> now he goes through and he even gets down in like verse 13, verse 14, and, he, and he's so bewildered by this fact that the wicked who are supposed to be punished are being blessed, uh, it seems, ostensibly, that he says, oh, all this religious ritualism I've gone to is in vain. So I've washed my hands, you know, in vain. These are all kind of cultic practices, the Israelites. And, and it's all been for nothing, okay? Um, if this is really the way the world works, okay? And then in verse 15, the psalmist toil raises to the level that he wonders, uh, as I mentioned earlier, whether he should even recite this inner toil that he's going through, you know? I have these doubts, I have these questions, I'm tempted not even to think that uh, religion is worth it anymore, and uh, okay, let's, uh, let's file all the uh, little kids in here, rip them out of Sunday school, and just let them know about all the honest doubts that we go through, okay? And he's saying, no, if I did that, then they might not, you know, stay the course and be faithful and, and grow up and be God-fearers, Okay? And, and then, as I mentioned, <clears throat> thankfully, the Holy Spirit trumps his um, desires. And then you get to the 16th verse, and uh, notice uh, what he says there. Um, when I thought how to understand all this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Well, that's Right out of Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, verse 17. Uh, and Kohelet, one of the most radical and difficult books in the Hebrew Bible to understand, basically says, see a man who says he can understand God's ways in the world? Doesn't exist. You cannot read into providence. You can't understand what's going on. Seek to raise your kids, you know, in a godly church, in a godly home, and they still go off the reservation? Hevel, Heveline. Makes no sense. Make several million dollars, build up your nest egg, so you can retire and enjoy life. And then uh, you bequeath it to somebody else, because Proverbs says that's a good thing to do. Well, who knows what's going to happen? Give that to your kid, and it just burns a hole in their pocket in six months. No, this is Kohelet. This is like, this makes no sense. This is absurd. Okay? So that's, that's the kind of thing that the psalmist is saying at this point up through verse 16. He's tempted, let's be honest, he's tempted to jettison the faith and say, it's all bizarre, it doesn't work, 
I want to check out, and I ain't getting out of bed to come to Christ URC this morning. <laughs> Especially since the pastor's not even going to read the scripture. <laughs> Just skip right over it. Obviously, those guys don't think it's very important. Uh, questions? Yes? Uh, I think it's 817. Why, are you looking there and it doesn't match? Yeah, no. Yeah, sometimes it's too bad. Uh, I hadn't planned on doing... Well, I might do like one thing on Ecclesiastes while I'm here over the next couple of months, but I wasn't really planning on doing much. But uh, what verse he's probably alluding to or saying the same thing uh, about and um, so that's chapter eight, seventeen. Um, I'm almost positive, and I'll tell you why I'm almost positive. Because the commentary that I was reading years ago, who made this comment about that, uh, Hingstenberg said, "Song of Songs, eight seventeen. Well, there is no seventeenth verse in chapter eight of the Song of Songs, and uh, so I go, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about Kohelet. He had a sloppy editor." And so then you look, and sure enough. So when I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which is done upon the earth, uh, day and night, sleep escaped my eyes, etc., etc. She didn't have any sleep. Yeah. Mm, Then I saw that the work of God, no man is able to find out the work which is done under the sun. 8.17. So that's it. All right, now look at the turning point, okay? So the turning point is verse 17. So that's what I call the solution for sacred doubt. So first of all, look. The Holy Spirit trumps this guy's opinion. He goes, I'm kind of ashamed of these inner turmoil thoughts I'm having. And so much so, it's like, you know, keep the kids in Sunday school class. I don't want them to come out and hear what I'm really going through, all right? But then the Holy Spirit trumps that. I think that's a very important lesson. God legitimizes lament in Scripture. He doesn't suppress it. He doesn't say he doesn't, he doesn't invite wholesale venting, you know. But nevertheless, he legitimizes it. Okay, and 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 um, and so doubt's not sinful in and of itself. It's it's. It's, it's when you allow it to fester and you don't deal with questions that you might have. Like I'm engaged with a couple men here in the congregation now even talking about subjects that you know they get hit with in their own vocations and their own education and that kind of thing. Okay, now that's good. Okay, doubt becomes destructive when you just let it fester and you don't seek out answers or seek out conversation and that kind of thing. Okay? But notice the turning point. Uh, verse 17, he says, until I came into, um, oh, I got to get back to, um, so, especially when you read it against verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it became a wearisome task to me until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end, okay? So, now, 
what he's, what he's doing here is he's finding a solution for the apparent um, upending of the doctrine of retribution. Okay? Um, and where does he find that? He finds it in the temple. Which for them, the temple communicated the presence of God. It was, if you will, at their time, their means of grace. Where they heard the word of the Lord, where they saw the typology, the sacrifices, which is like hearing the word of the Lord. Typology is pedagogical. It's, it's teaching. Okay? So that's where they get God. That's where they get religion. Okay? It's in the temple. So... Um, so you can see, if you have the page on page four, I quote this uh, um, guy named Koshevek, who has written the biggest, fattest book on retribution. He says, what follows may apply to past as well as to the present and the future. It's not possible to determine from these eight words in Hebrew, he's talking about verse 17, which time perspective is meant or which is predominant. For now, we are no longer dealing with empirical happenings, but with the expression of faith in an operation of God's justice transcending the flow of events. This change of mind and heart can be made only on the basis of a new conviction, a new perception and sensibility in the inner life of uh, the poet. And then if you flip over to the next page, if you have it, top of page five, see this is a good reason to even if you don't get around to reading it, to bring it with you to Sunday school. The temptation to judge God on the basis of the human idea of retribution is the radical sin of human self-understanding. The psalmist's account up to verse 17 shows that a consideration of prosperity had occasioned a crisis in faith. Right? He's looking on the wicked and going, these guys should be punished. What gives? Okay? Okay. Uh, he had failed to see how good God was to Israel. Remember verse 1. God is good to Israel, to the upright or pure in heart. To be pure in heart means, first of all, to trust in God as the ultimate authority and arbiter of right and wrong. His dilemma is this. Will he take right into his own hands and attempt to dictate to God, or will he leave everything to divine authority and wisdom? So when he enters into... Um, the sanctuary, then suddenly his disorientation, his bewilderment, calms down. He's not anxious. Go home this afternoon, or tonight, just as you fall asleep, and read the latter half of, of, of the psalm. Before he was brutish in his thinking. Before he was not only disoriented inside, he was disoriented about the world and the way it worked. This isn't just his subjective feelings. It's also about the, the mechanisms of how the world worked. And he goes, it just doesn't make any sense. But look, after he comes in the sanctuary, not so. And why? What did he understand in the sanctuary? Their end. Well, who's them? The wicked. So suddenly he comes in the sanctuary and he goes, uh, those tyrants, those wicked politicians, those you know, wicked uh, 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 um, avarice types you know, who are just like ambitious about building up wealth and they're not getting punished. I don't see them getting punished. You know, what gives? That doesn't make sense. That's not 
the way you told us in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, the world's supposed to work. He comes in the sanctuary and he goes, okay. <laughs> I see their end. It, it's not acquiescence like he's, he's not concerned about it, but it's a statement of faith. It's a statement of trust. And where does it happen? It happens in the sanctuary. Um, so here, here he comes into the place. It's like I have a friend, a very close friend, that we're quite frustrated with the growth of the social gospel in the church again, even in Reformed churches. Uh, you know, people making political comments from the pulpit, uh, people making, you know, the gospel all horizontal, not vertical, that kind of thing. And it's like, you know, don't you want to just come on the Lord's Day and, like, leave all that out there? Because all you got to do is go to the Y and get on the treadmill and turn on CNN, and you just get barraged with it, or, you know, at home or whatever. Okay? I mean, this is a place where you come and you leave all that crud behind. Why? Because this is the antidote for death. That was the temple for them. So this wonderful statement on page 5. Um, there, in the temple, they rejoice to find a world that is a sign to the nastier and more familiar world of everyday life. Or, to be more precise, they rejoiced over the temple reality with a keen awareness of the mundane reality from which they had been rescued. In the temple, instead of want... They found surfeit, in other words, surplus, bounty. Instead of abandonment, care. Instead of pollution, purity. Instead of victimization, justice. Instead of threat, security. Instead of vulnerability, inviability. Instead of change, fixity. Instead of temporality, eternity. If this sounds like the world to come, that's a Jewish way of saying heaven. Um, if this sounds like the world to come, or the, this is a Jewish author, or the Garden of Eden of rabbinic tradition, or the heaven of Christianity, that is surely no coincidence, for the temple is the source of much of the imagery out of which those ideas grew. Um, so, in other words... He comes into the temple, he hears truth. He hears revelation. Uh, for them, they saw typology through sacrifices, you know, that ultimately were types of the antitype, that is the fulfillment of those types, uh, through the whole purity system. Um, he's, they saw the Messiah to come. And what did that do? <sighs> Remember Chesterton I quoted? Even though I didn't read the Bible, I quoted Chesterton. I, uh, uh, so, uh, life is not an illogicality, but it is a trap for logicians. Now, if that makes no sense to you, Chesterton's all about paradox, because paradox is true standing on its head in order to attract attention. Okay? He thinks Christianity is the greatest paradox to ever happen. And, um, so, God doesn't always give answers. And sometimes we Christians, even Christian, even Calvinists, Reformed people, 
want too many answers. So God doesn't promise to give you all the answers. <laughs> if you want all the answers all the time, then when Pastor Godfrey gets here, when Pastor Godfrey gets here, <laughs> you're going to be in his office all the time. Meanwhile, I can see the elders. Now, that was the end of my tenure coming back here, all right? <laughs> but anyway, uh, or you're going to be knocking on the door of a psychologist. It'll drive you crazy. God didn't promise to give you all the answers. But he did promise, if you make the most of the means of grace, some of your anxiety will go away. So, page six. Basically, I say divine presence in the temple compensates for perceived injustice here. Okay? He's had a perception adjustment. Okay? He, he was brutish. In other words, he was kind of adult. He was all worked up before he went to the temple. Afterwards, he's just a lot more calm. Okay? And uh, you can just look at all the verses that follow. And, uh, and, that's, and that's the case. Um, so, um, all right, most importantly, because I want to leave some time for discussion and questions, is um, how does this all ultimately uh, apply to Christ then? So, you know, if I stop here, full stop, colon, you know, the psalmist is full of consternation and he gets up, rolls out of bed and goes to church in the morning and then everything's okay, it's like, well, you could have got that from a synagogue if you went down to downtown San Diego. I haven't really served you well, right? So how does this apply to Christ? So if you look on the last page, and here I'm building upon the shoulders, standing on the shoulders of an Old Testament colleague at another institution, I say, well, first, the I in this psalm, now much of this can apply to other psalms too, so what I'm trying to do is create tracks in the sand for you to responsibly read the Psalms, to see they point forward to Christ. And Christ is already there in the Psalms. Okay? Notice what I did first, though. I, di I didn't say, oh, this is all about Christ. Now we can all go home. Okay? Because uh, that wouldn't be very satisfying. See, ultimately our goal as teachers and preachers in Christocentric churches that are trying to point you to Christ, we have a duty first to show you the original horizon and try and explain it, and then Christ will shine forth that much more uh, luminously, okay, and clearly at the end. So you should walk away and go, oh, okay, that makes sense. Uh, how could it be otherwise? Otherwise, I haven't done my job. And every father here, when the kids get out of Sunday school, you're going to have to go out in the minivan and finish the teaching, okay? That was a joke, all right? I don't want you to have to do that. So I'm going to discharge my duty now, all right? So first, the I that speaks in the psalm is ultimately Christ. Okay, so in light of this morning, uh, and just generally, remember, he was full of consternation at the wicked, okay, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and even on the cross, even though we didn't talk about that so much uh, this morning during the worship hour. Okay, but they mocked his kingship. They were full of pride and arrogance. They had impunity towards him, even on the road to Emmaus. Okay. Uh, but Christ, so unlike the psalmist who fell into temptations to deny God and to be full of bewilderment, 
Christ, at each turn, as his obedience was challenged, rose to the occasion to exercise perfect obedience and trusted in his Father um, and um, did not um, uh, go down the same road. Uh, So he was able to see beyond the appearance of the triumph of the wicked to the glory he would receive in the power of the resurrection at the place of the right hand of the Father. So... Application, for those of us who are united in Christ, uh, we are changed because these realities are true to us. We can be strengthened. We can say with the confidence of the Apostle Paul, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Uh, so no matter what may hit us in life, okay, whether it be relationship betrayals, whether it be the slings and darts of an outrageous fortune, to quote the poet, with regards to chronic disease, Uh, whether it be slanderous comments uh, from others. Um, So I don't think there's any other ministers here. Just go into the ministry. Just go into the ministry, Daniel, okay? And then you'll be able to relate to that. Uh, And um, so um, on and on and on. Um, Well, we can derive strength from the fact that Christ has been our penalty payer and probation keeper and exercised and fulfilled all righteousness and didn't go the way of the psalmist. And now gives us the strength in and through his grace. And by means, by his distribution of the means of grace, namely word and sacrament, and I would add prayer, uh, to, to uh, find strength, to uh, persevere. And second, building on my colleague's comments, Richard Belcher, uh, continues to encourage readers who struggle with God's way in the world that we should not be tempted to give up the Christian convictions God has given us. Our high priest, so now he marches through the offices of Christ. So as a high priest, he still prays on our behalf. As a prophet, he still speaks the word to us regularly, especially on the Lord's day through his ordained beings. Um, and we hear his words so that when we go through these whiteouts, you know what a whiteout is? Probably not in Southern California. You know, that's when you get caught in a blizzard. And they can be so strong, you can't even see your feet in front of you, and you may not even know up or down they can be that thick, okay? So when we go through those wideouts, Christ clears the way for us. And as our king, he subdues our bewilderment, subdues our doubts, or helps guide them along so that we can still have faith in him. And then the last application that is my own that I can't help the more I meditate on this psalm, that I think is a natural, ordinary entailment of this psalm, is don't skip the means of grace. <laughs> I mean, it's, so, it's like, oh, duh. Uh, so for the, for the Israelite, that meant, that meant going to the temple. Or if they're far from the temple, whatever means were available there, they could think about the temple realities far away too and had means in their own locale but that's beside the point for us that means partaking sitting under the preaching of the word of God and partaking of the sacrament okay and all the other small m means of grace you know Uh, so we like to distinguish especially when we have these little bantering going on between continental reform people like yourself and Presbyterians so uh, you know uh, that means prayer Okay, even I would add fellowshipping together. I'm not exalting this to the same level as preaching and ministering the sacraments. But nevertheless, these are all important points to sustain us in our most holy faith, right? Don't skip out on that. 
The devil's in the details. Okay, last week I was away and visiting one of our former students, worshiping, leading worship at another congregation. And, and um, this woman was not going to church because she's getting all these bad messages about her daughter who, who, who is not making wise decisions and then she's self-talking, bad parent, I shouldn't be going to church, okay, because of stuff in her own life in the past. So which, you know, on the pastor who parachuted in, say, how much more so do you need the means of grace right now to get through this period, right? That's exactly right. But our adversary whispers in her ear, you're not worthy. You can't go hang out with all those other godly people. No, you need to go hang out with all those other godly people because guess what? They're sinners and saints at the same time too. And so is the guy telling you to do this, right? All right, a couple minutes for questions. Yes. Good. And not just the first half, right? Yeah. You get to the second half. Maybe I'll need to have a midweek service. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. William would probably shoot me for saying that, right? Two sermons a week is enough. Uh, but you do feel that huh. at the end of the service that, yes, there is, there is an end Then I saw their end. Then you see ultimate categories, Right? What evangelist was uh, Dwight Moody said, uh, well, you don't want to be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good or something like that. Well, the, the exact opposite is the truth. We want to be so heavenly minded that we are earthly good. So yeah, we all need the reorientation so that we can do our duty during the week, whatever that happens to be. And come hump day, we need it. Right? Absolutely. All right. Uh, it could be both. It's probably those outside. So, you know, he's, you know, so it could be a reflection of, you know, whenever we have a congregation, you know, um, and this is not to engender um, doubt or lack of assurance on all your parts, but I love to set up my, my students when they come. Daniel could probably testify to this. You know, you ask them because so many of them aren't coming out of Reformed churches. They go, how many kinds of people are there in the world today? Believers and unbelievers, right? Is that how the scriptures most often talk about it? Actually, they talk about it like this. There's the covenant community and not the covenant community. And then the covenant community is a mixed bag. 
In other words, just because you're in the covenant community doesn't guarantee you're saved. Okay? There could be hypocrites, even at Christ URC, who prove themselves over time not to be truly of the elect. So the scriptures often talk in these categories, those that are outside, and then those in the covenant community, um, but that's a mixed bag. You have hypocrites, you have believers, true believers, true God-fearers, and uh, not that we should run around suspecting who fits into what category, but whenever we're talking about the church or we're talking about the covenant community with Israel, we're talking about a mixed group. So that's part of the reason I'm answering the way I am is I'm not sure who he's describing, but often when he describes the Russia, the Russiaim, he's describing those outside. And look at look at the look at the way they're described. So you know, is their knowledge with the Most High? Uh, this phrase, you know, their tongue rises to the heavens. Okay, well, that's through another ancient literature's. Um, influence where it describes the arrogant, the proud, um, you know, boastful, uh, you know, that are, are in the face of God. And so I think the whole, the whole way, and, and then at the end he gets and he goes, and these are the wicked. Um, you know, and they're turning, they're turning the faithful away, you know, in verse 10. That's the right way to write and understand that. So they're turning the faithful ones away from keeping faith in God. So I I think enough evidence can be marshaled from inside the psalm to say these, these are the unbelievers, these are the God-haters who are prospering. They, you know, they, they got big portfolios, but they hate God. So that's basically, I think, yeah. Okay, well, we're at five after, and I promise I didn't end on time. So there's another chapter out there. Pick it up, bring it back this next week, um, yeah, and uh, we'll talk about 74. So remember, Psalm 50 says, God doesn't want external worship ritual. He wants covenantal obedience and praise. And then each of these psalms is a test case. So next week, the test case is temple-less Jerusalem. So, you know, for them, if the temple meant God's presence, what happens when these enemies come in and ransack the temple? What kind of response uh, does the psalmist have and should we have? All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. Seal these truths unto our heart. And, uh, Father, we thank you that ultimately they reveal Christ and his faithfulness even when they were unfaithful, even as we would be unfaithful, and even as we often are unfaithful and, and let the avalanche of bewilderment overcome us. Uh, strengthen our faith in and through these scriptures we ask for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Thanks for your attention.